hearty good morning. That felt like a fall good morning as opposed to a summer lull. Good morning. I appreciate that. Uh, if we haven't met uh, before, uh, if you're new, my name's Jamie. Uh, I'm the, the guy who most weeks gets the privilege of, of opening up the Bible, preaching God's word. Um, this morning uh, will be no different in that regard. Uh, if, you, if you haven't been around, uh, you're, you're coming in flying a little blind. Uh, just so that you know, uh, we are in the final week of a sermon series walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, some of you, you guys, you come in this morning, you're elated to find out that this is the final week of this sermon series. Uh, particularly if you found yourself frustrated with the pessimistic outlook of the book, some of the interpretive challenges. It is the book of Proverbs, emo kid brother, after all. The indie film version of Proverbs, if you will. Others maybe, maybe come in a little more bummed out. Maybe you like independent films. Maybe you're grateful for the honesty that, that this book of the Bible brings in capturing the experience of, of what it is to be human. Either way, this is it. We're done with it as far as the assembly of God's people goes. I hope that you're not done with this book. I hope, um, as James mentioned in our pre-service prayer, that this book continues to haunt you in the best way possible as you move forward in life. One thing that I do wanna point out this morning, notice that over the course of this summer, not only did the church not go into decline mode as we walked through this challenging book of the Bible, um, but we actually forged ahead without really skipping a beat, which flies in the face of those who would say that we need to stay away from certain books of the Bible, certain passages of scripture, particularly if we want to grow a church. It's kind of silly when you think about it, right? Jesus at one point said that he would build his church and that the, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I think it's safe to say that if the gates of hell will not stop Jesus from building his church, then most surely the divinely inspired word of God will not stop Jesus from building his church, right? And so we're happy to enter into the hardest passages of scripture as a church, the hardest, most challenging books of the Bible. We've certainly done that uh, over the course of this summer. We prayed for, for you this morning that God would sustain you over the course of the roughly half hour or so that we're gonna enter into the darkened waters of Ecclesiastes so that you might experience the, the hope on the other side, the beacon of light, so to speak. That's been the goal each and every week of this series. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse one. That's where we'll start off this morning and we'll finish out the book by the time all's said and done. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles, open up to this morning's passage and utilize that during your time with us. If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you, you brought into this place with you this morning is a little difficult to track with, then just consider that Bible the church's gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll get after it. God, I'll ask Yet again, one last time, as we dive into this book of the Bible, as your assembled people, along with a sprinkling of people who have come into this place, perhaps exploring the truth claims of Christianity, I pray that you would hold us up, that you would sustain us as we step into the darkened waters of Ecclesiastes one last time. God, I pray that you would not allow us to sink deeply into those waters, into into a place of despair, but rather that you would use our time in those darkened waters to, to cause us to see the beacon of light that is the gospel shine all the more brightly for having entered into those waters in the first place. God, would you, 
Would you do that? Holy Spirit, uh, we're desperate for you. As I say often in this place, apart from you, this is a futile exercise. And so would you, would you move mightily? Would you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to see, to hear, to receive that which you have for us in this moment in time? God, you knew what was gonna take place in this very room before we stepped into it. God, you love to glorify yourself and you do so by causing us to be satisfied in you. And so I pray that we would be by the time all said and done as we leave this place, that we would walk out satisfied deeply in you, seeing that there is something above the sun that brings hope in the midst of this life that we live east of Eden. God, would you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit? In the name of Jesus, I pray to the glory of the Father. Amen. So picking up where we left off last week, the author of Ecclesiastes spends much of chapters nine and 10, the last couple chapters that we've, we've jumped into, saying things that, that might lead any one of us to paralysis if we take it to heart. Going back to a couple uh, chapters ago, all it takes is a fly in the ointment. A little folly can lead to great ruin. The smallest of unintended mistakes can lead to a person's destruction, the author of Ecclesiastes declared, which means that getting life 99% right just isn't good enough a philosophical outlook that, that might lead any of us to never do anything out of fear of, of getting something wrong. And yet he goes on to say that we must do something. Chapter 10, verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. He says you've got to do something in a world in which uh, one foolish decision can destroy you. Paralysis, he says, is not an option. As we pick up things here in chapter 11, he continues to make the argument that doing something is better than doing nothing. He says in chapter 11, verse one, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Not a lot of consensus as to what the, these verses mean, which is really the case with respect to a lot of this morning's passage. Some believe the author here is encouraging his audience to give to the poor with the idea that generosity will lead to a return on investment when things get hard for you. Maybe those that you've given to will give back to you in return. Others believe he's encouraging us to take risks in the business world with the idea that such risk will likely produce some sort of reward. And then there are still others who argue that he's declaring the uncertainty of life yet again, that the idea that casting bread on the waters is actually a very foolish act that causes bread to dissolve, to, to fall apart, and yet even such a foolish act can lead to a positive outcome in the end, which is very much in line with the, the kind of arbitrary world that the author has been describing for ch several chapters now, right? Regardless of, of how we understand these verses, it's without question a call to some sort of active response in the midst of, of an uncertain world. That doing nothing because you might make an unintended mistake is just not an option. Idleness too leads to self-destruction. Going all the way back to chapter four, verse five, he said, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh that you, you gotta do something. And so why not do something that has some chance of benefiting you in some way in the end? 
Whether it's giving charitably so that you might be the the beneficiary of such charity should you need it down the road or investing in business ventures in the building of your portfolio, so to speak, or, or recklessly spending because even foolish decisions can lead to positive outcomes under the sun. He says, whatever you perceive will benefit you, do that. He goes on to say in verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or the north, whether you heard it or not, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie, he says. In other words, there's a lot in life that you just can't control. You can't keep a storm from coming, no matter how hard you try. If the clouds are full of rain, it's gonna rain, right? And there's nothing that that you and I can do about it. You can't determine which way a tree will fall. It's completely arbitrary. It's random. It's unpredictable, destroying you if it falls in your direction. And there's nothing you can do about that either. Verse four, he says, he who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. In other words, if you, if you wait for the right time to act, the perfect moment, you might never act at all because you never know what's coming next. The next storm could, could be over you in an instant. The next tree could be uprooted in a moment. You have to act, though the outcome of your actions is completely uncertain, he says. Verse five, he describes that uncertainty this way. He says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. He says, the activity of God is as mysterious as the way the wind blows as mysterious as the, the forming of an embryo. Going back to chapter nine, from an under, under the sun perspective, the, the hand of God is arbitrary with no direct correlation between deed and, and consequence. He says in verse six, in the morning, sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Again, better to take action though you have no idea what the future holds. In fact, better to be active in several different things, he says, so that if one fails, you might still come out on top. It's very similar to something he said back in chapter seven, verses 16 through 18, where he said, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this and from that, not, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from, from both of them. In other words, he says, you have no idea what God will do, so why pursue any one thing with great enthusiasm? That would be foolish. He says, hedge your bets. Spread out your activity in different directions. Take hold of a little wisdom. Withhold not your hand from a little folly. Cast your bread, to use this morning's language. Give a portion. Sow your seed. Withhold not your hand. For you do not know, he says, which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. In other words, your life is a stock market, he says, that could crash at any moment, and thus you should diversify your portfolio of activity in the world. He goes on to follow that by saying in verse seven, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. If you take that alone, that's actually a very positive statement. I used to love going to the the beach with my friends when I was in college. We lived about an hour and a half from Jacksonville Beach. And and this was actually, this would have been one of my life verses, verse seven. Light is sweet, 
pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Complete boneheaded buffoon of a, of a person at that point in my life because I had no idea of what that verse was surrounded with. It's actually very positive in and of itself, meaning that it's good to be alive, something that the author believes that we should delight in. But look at what he goes on to say at the end of verse eight. He follows those words by saying, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Going back to chapter nine, the author of Ecclesiastes basically summed up the benefit of living in one word, consciousness. If you remember going back to chapter nine, when you die, he said, you're not conscious of anything. The dead know nothing, chapter nine, verse five, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. At least the living know something. If only the knowledge that the living have weren't so depressing, right? Again, chapter nine, verse five, what do the living know that the dead don't know? The living know that they will die, he says. Like knowing that you will die, definitely better than being dead, right? We would all probably agree on that, but it's not a great consolation prize, right? That's not super encouraging language going back to chapter nine. That's what he's getting at here in chapter 11 as well, declaring that the future is like a dark cloud that looms over our heads. And those days of darkness, he says, will not be few, they'll actually be many. All that comes is vanity. What's the appropriate response? Well, we've seen it over and over and over again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Yet another call to enjoyment. The God-ordained gift of distraction, giving us good things and the power to enjoy them so that we might not spend too much time thinking about the days of darkness to come. Chapter 11, verse nine, he says, rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. It's one of those verses that that those who see the calls to enjoyment in the book of Ecclesiastes as optimistic have a little bit of trouble with because the author here declares that we should walk in the ways of our heart and the side of our eyes, though God declares something very different elsewhere in scripture. As God is speaking to Moses in Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 through 39, he says this, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. That's pretty strong language, right? Like he basically takes the language of the author of Ecclesiastes, God does, and goes so far as to attribute that language with the idea of adultery, the adulterous heart. Again, going back to chapter seven of Ecclesiastes, the author is essentially saying, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's about enjoying the God-ordained gift of distraction, but doing so with an air of caution. Proceed with caution before God. Watch your step. Again, you never know what God might do. Verse 10, he says, remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. He says, remove the, the negative emotional and, and physical things that might hinder you from enjoying life in your youth. Purge those things from you. For the opportunity to enjoy your youth is very limited, right? Youth doesn't last forever. The dawn of life is fleeting. The days of darkness will come soon enough, he says. 
which he then goes on to to bring into view in a very poetic way in chapter 12, drawing us to, to peer in, you might say, like the ghosts of Christmas future on the impending darkness of our old age and our own death. He draws us into our own funeral in this very unique way. He says this in chapter 12, verses one and two. He says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Notice that there's, there's no call to remember God when we get older. There's no mention of, of the joy of being absent from the body and present with the Lord in death. Instead, you have this description of fleeting youth, of old age, of death, using the imagery of a darkened sky filled with clouds. Clouds that, that come even after the rain goes away so that there's no, no sun breaking through. A picture of gloom, a picture of despair, a picture of, of dread and sorrow. He goes on to say in verse three, in the day when the, the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Some believe that, that there's this allegorical thing happening here. This might sound silly to some of you, but there are a lot of scholars that believe that the grinders are the teeth of one in old age. They become few, start to lose your teeth. Those who look through the windows are dim, that that's a picture of, of the losing of sight the older you get. There are others who would interpret it to say that it's simply the description of a house that was at one point vibrant with, it, with its many workers and no longer a place of activity. Where there was once animation, the house now is lifeless. The workers now filled with fear and trembling as they stare at death's door. Verse four goes on to say, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. The song, yeah, sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. Not only the, the house, but the entire city is impacted by this death as businesses shut down. The joyful song that, that fills the streets is brought to silence. Many filled with terror, afraid of what, what is high, which some believe to be a veiled reference to God who holds the keys of life and death. Some perceive the, the picture of nature here to be a communication of those very same things. Just another picture um, that you have the, the almond tree blossoming, which blossoms with white blossoms representing the hair of old age. The grasshopper dragging itself along as the bones become more feeble. There are others who, who believe that this is simply a description that nature doesn't skip a beat when we die, that the bird continues to sing, the tree continues to blossom, the grasshopper continues to move along. Going back to chapter one, mountains and seas will outlive you and they won't care that you came and went. Nature, a reminder of the, the depressing reality of life under the sun. The end of verse five, he says, and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. 
And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Here you have a, a list of metaphors describing death, either a picture of a, a broken well, a broken cistern, no long, longer able to draw water, water being a, uh, having to do with life, or a picture perhaps of a lamp no longer able to produce a glow, light also having to do with a, a description of, of life as opposed to the darkness of death. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, essentially, is what he says. Some believe that the, the spirit returning to God, nothing more than a, a loss of animation where God had once given breath, now he takes it away. Others believe that he actually believes that man's spirit does in fact go to God, and yet the trouble is that the author never says anything hopeful about that return. In fact, the words that follow verse eight of chapter 12, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. That's the last you hear from the first person author in the book of Ecclesiastes. The very same words found in chapter one, verse two, creating this set of bookends so that the conclusion in the end is no different than the conclusion in the beginning. Because you can't arrive at an above the sun hope by way of an under the sun perspective, no matter how hard you try. All is vanity. Those are the last words that we get from the one who's been speaking to us up to this point in the book. When you get to verse nine, there's a shift that happens from the first person to the third person. Someone commenting by, by way of an epilogue, you might say, on everything up to this point in the book, which I would argue is another reason to see much of this book as an unorthodox, under the sun thinking. If everything up to this point was orthodox in its writing, why would you need an epilogue? Right? The writing itself would stand on its own just fine like many books of the Bible do. These last few verses seem to present a warning against this kind of under the sun wisdom, kind of wisdom that falls short of the kind of wisdom found elsewhere in the Bible. He says this, the commenter, the commentator, I should say, in verse nine, he says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. If you've been tracking for this series, at this point you might go, well, hold up. We've been talking about the author of Ecclesiastes as being a little bit unorthodox, as being incredibly pessimistic, even the hopeful parts of his writing being a resigned conclusion at best. How can we call him wise? To which I would say, that word translated wise in verse nine, if you look elsewhere in other parts of scripture, that word is not just used in the form of an adjective, but at times it's used as a title for someone. In other words, meaning that it's not only translated as someone being wise, but there are a number of times in the scriptures where that would be translated just the same besides being the wisdom man, the sage, it's kind of like if you, if you took the prophets of the Old Testament and you describe them using the adjective of proclamational, but you could also use that same language to describe the prophets as proclamation men in the Old Testament, which makes sense if you continue to read verse nine because it, it's talking about the actions associated with, with his title. He, he was a knowledge man. He was a, a Proverbs man. He was a, a wisdom man. Things that we see in the book itself, right? The author testing wisdom in the quest for meaning and happiness, going back to chapter two, something that led him to despair. The author grouping together collections of Proverbs, going back to chapter seven and 10. 
It goes on to say in verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. We know that that the author of Ecclesiastes sought to find words of delight. That was much of his goal throughout the course of the the book, right? And, And we also know that he failed to find that which he so desperately sought. He failed to find the delight that his heart longed for in the quest for meaning and happiness, which is why the author of Ecclesiastes' writing isn't dripping with the sweetness of a honeycomb. No one would describe the book of Ecclesiastes that way, right? But what about, what about the second part of this verse? Again, particularly if you're one of those who perceive the book of Ecclesiastes to be, by and large, pessimistic, maybe even including things that don't jive with other parts of Scripture, going back to the, the pursuit of, of the heart and the eyes, being in conflict with Numbers chapter 15. One way to deal with that is to take it to mean that he wrote uprightly about life under the sun, that his assessment from an under the sun perspective is very honest. It's true to life if that's your experience, if that's the way you're looking at the world around you. Another possibility is found in the the more literal word for word New American Standard translation of verse 10, which says this, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Notice with that translation, which is the more literal word-for-word translation of the Bible, that the word sought informs the entire verse. So that it's not just that the preacher sought to find words of delight, it's also that he sought to write words of truth. It doesn't mean that he actually achieved either of those things in the end. Maybe he didn't always write words of truth, evidenced by the portions of his writing that don't jive with the rest of scripture. Maybe he failed to succeed in what he sought to accomplish on both accounts. It goes on to say in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. If you're around for the Acts series, you might remember the Apostle Paul's um, conversion story involving that kind of language of of him kicking against the goads. Goads were sharp sticks used to prod oxen, used to keep them in in line in moments of great resistance. The words of Ecclesiastes, the commentator here in verse 11 is saying, they're like that. They're a punch to the gut. Maybe you, you would affirm that through your experience over the course of this summer at moments as we've worked our way through this book. A gut punch given by one shepherd, which may or may not be God, Some translations have shepherd capitalized, others don't. You won't find in the Hebrew capitalization so that you really know what to do with that. The shepherd could simply be the author of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom man who prods us with his painful words. Or it could be God who breathed out the book of Ecclesiastes just like every other book of the Bible intended to prod us to direct our gaze above the sun as we've seen week in and week out throughout this series. He goes on in verse 12 to say, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a a weariness of the flesh. Now you see that that this epilogue takes place in this sort of father-son context, which is pretty common in wisdom literature. You see it in Proverbs uh, chapter one. Sometimes it's a biological father-son relationship. Sometimes a a, a disciple-student sort of relationship. He's saying Here in verse 12, you may be inclined, son, to walk away from the book of Ecclesiastes unsatisfied and thus embark on a search of your own, grabbing hold of of book after book, writing after writing, 
philosophical work after philosophical work on a quest for happiness and meaning under the sun. Beware of doing such things, he says. Not only will it lead to a weariness, which we've seen in in the author of Ecclesiastes' experience, but he says you'll come out no better than the author himself in the end. The, The results of his quest, in other words, are sufficient for any of us as it pertains to the search for meaning and happiness under the sun. Going back to earlier in the book, remember, we're talking about the perfect candidate to search out the meaning of life using wisdom as a guide. This is either Solomon or Solomon personified, the wisest man apart from Jesus to have ever lived. That if the wisest king in human history can't find happiness and meaning in this world with all of his wisdom, all of his resources, who of us can? It's a wearisome endeavor to give it a go on your own. The last couple verses of the book says this. It's kind of a summation, the point of it all. The end of the matter, he says, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The the closing words of the epilogue, they they do go further than the author of Ecclesiastes was willing to go in in one sense, in a couple senses actually. For the better part of 12 chapters, we've seen the, the first person author of Ecclesiastes use the name Elohim in reference to God rather than Yahweh. If you've been around for the series, you maybe have tracked with this, Elohim being the more general name for God used in Genesis 1 in the the cosmic level story of creation. It's when you get to Genesis chapter 2 that Yahweh is used in, in relation to a description of God in relationship with his covenant people. Used in Genesis 2 as the creation story zooms in on God's relationship with his image bearers in the garden. It's the name Yahweh that emphasizes God's covenant faithfulness, his commitment to fighting for his people. It's a name that the author of Ecclesiastes never uses in reference to God throughout the better part of 12 chapters. And neither does the commentator here in verse 13. However, he does imply it in the call to keep God's commandments. If you go back throughout the Old Testament and you look at the covenants established, between God and our first parents in the garden, God and his covenant relationship with Abraham, the covenant he established with Moses, the covenant he established with with David, that God's commandments are given in the context of, of a covenant relationship with Yahweh, that they're inextricably tied into this relational understanding of, of God. Also, If you look at these last couple verses of the book of Ecclesiastes, the idea of God bringing every deed into judgment here in the epilogue, it doesn't carry with it this frustration that God delays his judgment like we've seen in previous chapters, nor does it carry with it the idea that that God's judgment is arbitrary, but rather it's more settled here in these last couple verses. A judgment on the basis of man's keeping of God's commandments. And so it does go a little further than the first person author of Ecclesiastes was willing to go, and yet at the same time, it also leads us to where the book has led us all along. Even the epilogue forces us to leave the book of Ecclesiastes, to look above the sun and beyond the bounds of the book to find our answers. That 
We know, you know this if you've been around for this series, that in Jesus Christ, the whole duty of man is fulfilled. Our hope is in Jesus. He came to live the only perfectly righteous, commandment-keeping life the world has ever known. Not a trace of sin to be found in Jesus. Hallelujah. His perfect commandment-keeping record credited to rebellious, commandment-breaking sinners like you and me by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. We know that Jesus came to destroy the power of death through his own death, the sinless one bearing the sins of his people in sacrificial love so that we who trust in Jesus can stand before God someday knowing that his bringing of every deed into judgment will not destroy us because Jesus was destroyed on our behalf. We know that Jesus came to triumph over death through his victorious resurrection so that the ashes and dust, they will not have the final word, that we can live for him in our youth and we can bring him glory in our old age. That death is not the darkened reality that gets the final word. That on the other side of death is glory. On the other side of crucifixion is an empty tomb. So that with Jesus, to use the language of this morning's passage, I love this. The days of darkness, they won't be many. They'll actually be very few. They will be a single grain of sand among the sands of time when all is said and done. A blip on the radar swallowed up in the eternal bliss of the age to come. This life is a bl- this under the sun, east of Eden thing we're doing right now, it's a blink. And that's a glorious truth. That when we fix our gaze above the sun, we come face to face with the one who's come to save us from the meaninglessness and hopelessness of it all. And his name is Jesus. And I've got to ask, as I've asked every week of this series, do you know him? To come back to a very old quote in this series from the early days of Ecclesiastes, you might say, Tim Keller says, when you live for yourself, you lose yourself. When you live for the now, you lose the now. But when you live for Christ, you find yourself. And when you live for eternity, you get the now, a now shot through with glory. If you live for life under the sun, you'll lose life. If you live as though life under the sun is just part of a universe shot through with the glory of God, he says, you will find your meaning. You will find yourself. And so let me ask, whether this is your first time with us or whether you've been around for the better part of this series, have you found yourself? having loosened the white-knuckle grip on your life? Have you embraced the invitation to live for eternity, to meaningfully participate in a universe shot through with the glory of God? Going back to something we talked about in the very first week of this series, Ecclesiastes is not a book declaring that nothing matters. It's a book declaring that nothing matters without God and that with God, everything matters so that I would commend you, church, to keep fixing your eyes above the sun. Keep coming back to the book of Ecclesiastes and allowing it to continue to haunt you so that it drives you above the sun. Keep basking in the wonder of God's glorious grace. Jesus has made a way for us to stop clawing after ultimate happiness and meaning in this world. We don't have to live that way. We can enjoy the the happiness and hope of resting in the one who's made us for himself, the one who delights in holding us fast by his grace, the one who offers in himself consummate satisfaction and joy, the one above the sun.
Thank you.